0: Gateway. Dina here again. Uh, you know, we have, as you've heard already, we are in our fourth week of Advent. And you know, Advent is not complete until we actually start talking about the return of Jesus Christ. You know, anyone familiar with this subject know that it can be a little dicey. It's lots of debate about it. The fancy word that we use for it is eschatology, the study of last things or the end of the world. Today, I'm going to do my best to bypass all of that debate, and the main reason for that is because if we look squarely at the text, I believe that Jesus has some very helpful lessons for us to take from it. Now, we have no better teacher about this subject than Jesus himself, and so what we're going to do is take a look at what he says. So if you will, let me start start us off with prayer. So Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to be able to get together once again we know that our brothers and sisters around the world don't have this privilege. Lord Jesus, I, I address you directly asking Lord that you would begin to open up our eyes and help us to hear what you have actually said. We don't want to hear what everybody thinks about what you said. We want to hear directly from you. So I pray Lord that you would bless this time and that you would open our hearts to receive that which you have given to us. That we would walk away different, Lord God, or at least change to the degree that we hear what your lessons are for us so we thank you even now we pray these things in jesus name amen now most of you i'm assuming have been to college i remember my college days when i went for my orientation did you guys have this where they say look to your right look to your left that person won't be here in four years when they said that my mom was right behind me and she said that's not going to be you You've got four years, buddy. Now, my mom did not give me any threat whatsoever. But somehow I knew I needed to be done in that four years. When I was a senior, I took this horrific accounting class, and I did not want to have anything to do. I was in, fail- I was in danger of failing it. And I remembered what my mom said to me. See, that four-year clock was winding down in my brain. Now, she said nothing to me in the entire three years. But I really did not want to find out what would happen if I didn't finish in four years. Thankfully, I finished. But you know that clock that I said was ticking in the back of my mind? Well, what we're going to talk about today, Jesus is allowing that to happen for us. He's coming back. That clock is winding down. And the question on the table for us is going to be, are we ready? Are we ready for him to come back? So, as we go to the text, let's start again from the first verse 20. It says, Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The coming of the kingdom is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, Here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, how are we supposed to understand what is going on here? The Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and Jesus are both using the same phrase, the kingdom of God. But you get the sense that they don't mean the same thing. For the Pharisees, they're thinking of the Messiah figure who's going to come in power, and when he comes, he will defeat Israel's enemies, restore Israel to her place, to the head of the nations, and then establish peace. They want to know what to look for so they can figure out when the kingdom will be established. Now, one of the things that we need to make sure we understand is that the issue, the real issue on the table, is not really about the kingdom. It's about Jesus. They don't trust him. Now, despite the clear evidence of who he is, uh, in the previous section, Luke records Jesus healing 10 lepers. That was no minor feat. The reason he puts that story before this encounter with the Pharisees is so he, so just to show just how much the Pharisees don't get Jesus. But Luke does not want his audience to miss this point. So allow me to give you an example of what it is that Luke is trying to do here. Let me read from another section of scripture. It says in Luke 7, 18 to 23, reread this. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, If you remember, John was the forerunner of Jesus, and he was the one who prepared the way for Jesus to come. God told him how to identify Jesus, and John saw it happen just as he was told. When he was asked if he was the Messiah, he said plainly, no, but the one that you were looking for is in your midst, and I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. When Jesus finally comes on the scene, John boldly proclaims, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So why is it that John now asks Jesus if he is the one, or do we look for another? Let me tell you why. John was suffering from distractions. John was in jail, and he knew his life was hung in the balance. What he wanted to know from Jesus was when he was coming to save him. And if he wasn't going to, who else should he be expecting? John wanted that same conquering Messiah to save him from his circumstances and wanted to know when he could be expected. That's just like the Pharisees. His circumstances distracted him from the Savior he needed, and in his place, he erects a Savior that he wanted. But Jesus is never going to make a deal like this. Instead, Jesus tells John's disciples to go back and report to John all that he has been doing. Because what Jesus describes, in terms of what he was doing, is fulfillment of a number of prophecies that come from Isaiah. Jesus is indeed the Messiah that was predicted, but his ministry is not just about the display of conquering power. It includes restoration and the proclamation of good news as well. His ministry is much grander than what John or the Pharisees understood, even though all of it was told to them in advance through prophecy. Did you catch what Jesus said at the very end? Blessed is anyone who is not offended on account of me, on account of who I am, not who you want me to be. Before we get back to our main text, let me make one observation. When John was preparing people for Jesus, there was no real signs of his coming. John told the people that Jesus was among them, but he did not point to something observable, no evidence that could point him out. It was not until Jesus actually showed up that things started to happen. There was nothing to observe. There were no indicators that telegraphed his coming. He simply appeared at the right time. Now, let's get back to our passage. Jesus' response to the Pharisees shows that they suffer from the same misunderstanding that John did. They had distractions. The coming of the kingdom of God has no preceding indicators. People will not say it's here or over there. No, no, no. In fact, Jesus says the kingdom is already in your midst. So let's be clear about what Jesus is saying here because there are a number of, few, uh, there are a number of inter- interpretations of what he's saying. He is not saying that somehow that the kingdom is in their hearts. He is talking to the Pharisees. He tends to have the harshest words for his group. He will go on to call them children of the devil. He is not saying that the kingdom of God is in their hearts. And nor is it in ours, for that matter. Whenever the kingdom of God is mentioned it's in, rela- in, in, in relation to people, it refers to people entering the kingdom and not the kingdom entering people's hearts. Why? It's because God's rule is over everything. While the idea of God ruling in our hearts is acute thought, it does not do justice to what the kingdom is actually about. Remember what, how the uh, Lord taught us to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth, not our hearts. The kingdom is much more encamp- encompassing than our hearts. Now all that said, Jesus does use the plural form of your in this text. He's saying, the kingdom is somehow present among you all, or y'all, like some of the Texans like to say. The kingdom is here because the king is here. And Jesus is saying, I am right in front of you. The reason they don't see it is the same reason John was questioning Jesus. They are distracted. They want a conquering king, and when, Jesus, when they see Jesus performing these miracles, like the lepers, He does not fit their image of what the Messiah they wanted should be. And even though he was the one, even though everything that he was doing was foretold by by scripture, this distraction puts them in danger of setting themselves up against the very person that they actually need. You know, Allison, who did this, the interview, I mean, I'm sorry, the the announcements, that's my daughter, okay? And we're very proud of her. But when she was in high school, she came to me one day and said, Dad, is this all real? She's referring to the faith. She wanted to know if it was real. Not even getting upset, because I knew what was going on. The handoff was about to happen. When I say the handoff, I mean from her thinking of it as my faith to her owning it as her own. And so when she asked me, I simply said, sweetie, I've tried my best, as best as I possibly could, to doubt this thing. But when I look at it, our faith has the best explanation for what's going on in our world. It tells the truth about who I am. It tells the truth about who everybody else is. And then there's Jesus. What do you do about him? So I said to her, "I, I challenge you. Explore, figure it out on your own. I'm here if you need questions, but I want you to own this for yourself. And she did. And she's leading Bible studies in college right now. She owns it because she figured out what to do with Jesus. That journey was positive for her. Now for some of us, we know what that journey looks like. Many have embarked on the same journey to explore the validity of the faith, and that's good and healthy as long as it brings you back to Jesus. Others of us have been distracted, just like the Pharisees. Are we missing out on the kingdom work that God is already doing right in front of us? Or are we bypassing what we see and looking for an alternative? Have the circumstances uh, in life so distracted you that you wonder if God even cares? Or if following Him is even worth the hot hassle? If that's you, let me remind you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He is right in front of you. Don't look past him. Now, people coming into the kingdom, let's make sure we're clear, they don't negotiate the the terms of his rule. They simply submit to it. We can trust him. He is good. You guys tracking with me? If so, say amen. Okay. After dealing with the Pharisees, Jesus now turns his attention to the disciples. He knows what's going on with the Pharisees, and he doesn't want them to fall victim to the same problem that's plaguing the, um, the Pharisees. So let's read. Then he says to his disciples, The time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, here he's here. I mean, there he is, or here he is. Do not go running or after them. For the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Now, if you've been around Gateway for any amount of time, you've heard Ed say that this title, Son of Man, that Jesus has used, it's his favorite designation for himself. And he's right. Because it can mean the son of a human being, which Jesus was because uh, his mother was Mary, but the fuller meaning of the title comes from Daniel 7. And there the Son of Man is seen as one who is given all authority to rule over the nations. The disciples, John, and the Pharisees wanted that Son of Man. But Jesus wanted his disciples to understand the significance of his power. First, all the healings and that proclamation of the good news to the poor, Jesus wanted that to be as a reference to show how the that incredible power is tempered by his kindness and his grace. And to that end, Jesus says, you are going to long to see the day when I come and exercise that power. That is, that's what he means by the days of the Son of Man. But he says this, you're not going to see it. Jesus is talking about a delay, a forced delay. In essence, Jesus is saying, I am going to make you wait. Now, in Luke 19, 11, we read that while they were, they were listening to Jesus, he went to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So why did Jesus make them wait? Why not just bring the kingdom right away? There may be three reasons that we see this for this delay. First, it's because of those distractions that I talked about. They were not ready. For many of us, neither are we. We don't long to see him return. We have other things on our minds. Jesus coming back is not typically one of them. We have bills to pay, things to worry about, and our kingdoms to build. If he's on the list of important things, he's certainly not in the top 10. Well, the delay is meant to create a longing in our hearts for him, and he will make you wait until you are sick and tired of how broken this world is and long for him to return. Now, we've seen God do this before. He did it with Adam. When God created Adam and Eve, there was a space between when Adam was created and Eve was created. And in between, God had Adam name the animals that God paraded in front of Adam in pairs. Mr. and Mrs. Lion, Mr. and Mrs. Bear, those big big preachers with those long noses, those are elephants I've ever saw, Mr. and Mrs. Elephant. But somewhere down the line, Adam may have asked God, where's someone like me? And when God finally brings him to, or brings Eve to Adam, He says, "Hot dog! Finally, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh." The delay created a longing in Adam's heart, and the delay Jesus is referring to is to meant to do the same for us. When He returns, those who will long for Him will say, "Finally, He is here." Now, Jesus offers us a quick warning. He tells the disciples, you won't have to go looking for me. If people claim I am here or there, don't fall for it. Like with John, when the time comes, I will appear. And when that happens, everybody will see it. It's going to be like a lightning flashes from the east to the west. When you see lightning, no one, no one asks what that is. We all know what lightning is. And in other words, Jesus is saying, when I return, it's not gonna be a question if it's me. No one is gonna question if it's me. Now the second reason the delay is what I alluded, uh, the, for the delay is what I alluded to earlier is because of God's kindness. His coming will be slow but is certain. One of the main reasons for the delay is so that people will be given a chance to come to know Him. We're gonna talk a little bit more about this when we get to know her. But let me talk about that third reason for the delay. But first he must, speaking of Jesus, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Now, we all know why Jesus had to suffer. His death was also foretold. It doesn't tell us that he would die, but, I mean, it didn't tell us just that he would die. But, in, but why would he needed to die? In Isaiah 53, uh, 4-6, it says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace uh, was on him, and by his his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep gone astray, each of us turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. We know this, and we thank God for this prophecy. But we don't just thank God for the prophecy. We thank God because it already has come to pass. Jesus paid for our salvation with his own blood. So the third reason for the delay was that our pardon had to be bought and only Jesus could do it. He had to suffer first. But you have to know that disciples struggled with this teaching. They had a hard time reconciling how Jesus had to die but him also saying that the kingdom was already here. And why was it so confusing? Quite frankly, because the way Jesus talked about it was actually pretty confusing. He spoke often about the kingdom already being present, but taught at least about as often that he was going to die. So which is it? And what are the implications for us as it relates to what we've been talking about in our series, the issue of joy? Is the kingdom of God here, or is it coming? And Jesus' answer to that question is yes. The kingdom is already here because it's been inaugurated. But it's not yet been consummated. So by extension, our joy is here, but our joy is not yet complete. The Apostle Paul understood this concept very well. Listen to what he writes in Ephesians one13 to 14. And you also were con- included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those, uh, those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. And could you imagine that? The Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, was given as a seal and a down payment. And that signified that the inheritance, the full inheritance, is still on its way. Let that sink in for a second. So why is this important? It's critically important because this truth is an anchor for our soul. It has the potential of keeping, uh, to keep from fall, uh, keeping us from falling victim to distractions while we're in forced delay. But there's an ele- another element to this conversation we need to consider. It is sometimes uh, it is something that Jesus provides for us. Do you notice how little Jesus says concerning uh, himself and what's going to happen to him? He's going to repeat this lesson over and over again, recognizing that he will have to endure this, uh, this horrific event. Jesus says this in John 14, 30, 30, to, 1, 30 to 31. I will, say, I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has hold over me. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Did you hear his determination? He knows he will suffer, but he has the determination to remain obedient to what the Father has commanded him to do so that the world would know how much he loves that, the Father. I wonder what the world will learn about me. If I had to suffer like that during this delay? What would the world learn about you? Would it be the love and obedience to the Father? Or would it be something else? I think that the question to, uh, I think that the answer to the question I just posed is pretty important. Uh, is a pretty important one in light of what Jesus is, begins to discuss in the next verses. Verses 26 to 37 will all discuss judgment. Now if your idea of Jesus does not include him speaking very frankly about about judgment, well here he is. We cannot miss what he is saying here. There will be a decidedly different tone to his second coming. The conquering king will finally put in an appearance, but his arrival will mean the end of the days of grace and usher in the days of restoration. On the front end of that restoration, Jesus is gonna set all things to right. And that that time is gonna begin with judgment. He who hears, who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Lord says to the church. So look at, look at these next verses as we read. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came, and destroy them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, but the day of Lot, uh, but the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven, and destroyed them all. Now it is important for us to understand the context of the Noah reference, unless we think that the Lord is just coming to destroy everyone. I know the flood account is probably most, I mean, it's familiar to most of you, but there's an aspect of it that you may not see. And it may not be that apparent. In Genesis 6, 8, we're told that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In a world gone mad, why did Noah find favor in the eyes of the Lord? Well, verse 9 tells us, and it says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. It's that last phrase that is the key, because we've heard that before. That phrase describes Enoch. Who was Noah's great-grandfather. Enoch walked so faithfully with God that God just took him away. He said, I love this dude. Just, Just come with me. People looked for him, but Enoch was gone. But before he left, Enoch had a son, and his name was Methuselah. We all know what Methuselah is famous for in the Bible? He was the oldest living man in the Bible, Right? But do you know what that, mean, name, that name means? His name means when he dies, it will come. That it is judgment. Now, Methuselah was Noah's grandfather. Apparently, Methuselah was faithful to pass down the legacy to Noah's father, Lamech, because Noah names, uh, Noah's name means comfort. So Lamech saw Noah as the one who God would use to break the curse that God put on the ground. In other words, Noah was part of a family who longed to see God show up. And God did show up. The New Testament tells us that both Enoch and Noah warned the world of God's impending judgment. So Methuselah Methuselah is very important in the conversation because God withheld judgment for the entire lifetime of the oldest man on record. 969 years, God showed patience. Since Jesus went back home, it's been more than twice that. God is very, very patient. During, the whole, during this whole time, or that whole time, it's business as usual, and it will be the same when the Lord returns. They were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage, No one paid Enoch or Noah any mind. Only eight people responded, and only eight people were saved. The rest were destroyed. During the time of Lot, the same held true. They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. And Jesus is describing the industriousness of Sodom and Gomorrah. The descriptions may be slightly different, but it was still business as usual. Peter describes Lot as a righteous man whose soul was being tormented by the wickedness around him. But when Lot and his family left, the rest of the people in the cities were destroyed. And when the Lord returns, it will not be pretty. Verse 30. It will be just like this on the day of the Son of Man, uh, the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one, is on the, uh, no one who's on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. I'll tell you, on that night, two people will be in one bed, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together, one will be taken, and the other left. And when when Jesus returns, it's going to be the same thing, business as usual. Remember when I asked the question about what the world uh, would learn about us when suffering came? What did we learn about Lot's wife? She was disobedient and was turned into a pillar of salt because of it. The urgency of the situation called for that determination to obey God because, of her, and because in her case, God was trying to save her. Instead, she looked back um, because of the life she was living, include, and she wanted and longed for the stuff that she was leaving behind. And this is the reason why Jesus issues the warning. He does, about those possessions. That life is gone and no good. When Jesus returns, he's going to be offering you a brand new life. What God offers you is true life. Lose the old so you can gain the new. So in other words, we need to get our priorities straight. Jesus is clearly telling us that there is a much bigger story being played out than the one that is playing out around our stuff. None of that really matters. At best, it's all fleeting. If we fail to see this point, the implications are huge and the consequences are dire. It's the difference between you making adjustments in life now and being ready when he returns or carrying on like business as usual and being shocked by his return. We have to get ready. God has called us to be on his salvation team. That requires training and determination to be obedient. Any good coach will tell you, you won't have to worry about getting ready if you concentrate on staying ready. The question is for us, are we ready? Now verses 34 and 35 speak to the fact that this will be a global phenomenon. No one will escape. It also tells us that there will be a division. Humanity is going to be divided based on what they do with Jesus. Some will be spared from judgment and others will not. It is not clear, at least to me, if this means anything more than what was just stated. Jesus doesn't seem to elaborate on it, and so I won't either. And there's the issue for what it means. There is this issue about what it means to be taken and left. Some interpret this as evidence of the rapture. While that is possible, I'm not, uh, I'm not sure the context points that way. By using Noah and Lot as examples, it could be that Jesus is simply saying that those taken are being spared from judgment. Noah was not removed from the judgment of the flood; he was preserved through it. Lot was removed from the cities, but not from the vicinity, because of God's judgment. He was forced to live in a cave, so it still felt as if he still felt the effects without um, the effects of God's judgment, even though he didn't uh, suffer the full brunt of it. The lesson for us is not so much what happens to us when judgment comes, but if we trust God, we will be spared from judgment. Now in response to everything the Lord just taught, the disciples ask, where, Lord? And that just seems cryptic, especially with the way Jesus answers, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will be. Now the question the disciples asked seems almost as clueless as the ones that the Pharisees was asking about when, when the kingdom would come. It's where, but where what? And the Lord's answer seems to be of little uh, seems a little bit more instructive because it simply seems to say he is hinting that we need to have discernment. Just as the gathering vultures signals a dead body, judgment is coming because of the wickedness of the world. The only way to escape it is to deal with Jesus. The king is right in front of you. What are you going to do with him? Let's pray. Father, Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for this teaching that you've given us to prepare us for your coming. I pray that you would help us to begin to reset the clocks in our mind. Help us to see what our priorities are, Lord. Show us the right way. Help us to take what you've taught us and begin to order our lives accordingly. We need to be prepared for when you're coming, not just us, Lord God. We need to also preach the good news to those who might need it so that when you come, you will find us faithful to the cause that you've called us to and that we bring glory to your great name. Hear our prayer. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.